All right, so we are in the book of Jonah. And so we're in chapter three this week. So, so far in Jonah, if you don't know the story of Jonah, just a quick recap. Jonah is a prophet of God that God pulls to the side, says, Jonah, I want to send you to Nineveh to give the message that I give you. And so Jonah knows Nineveh. Nineveh is a bad place. We've compared it to Nazi Germany. We've compared it to all sorts of different atrocities. The Ninevites were known for in their palaces and places where their leaders were, putting up murals of the violence that they would do throughout the earth. And so when dignitaries from other countries would come to these places in Nineveh, they would see these murals and it was almost Nineveh saying, that's who we are, don't cross us, right? So these were some bad dudes. These were some bad people. And God says to Jonah, go there. And so Jonah says, I'm, I'm okay. And he goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat to head to Tarshish and God says, no, 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 Jonah, I want you to go there. So God sends a storm to this boat. The pagan sailors on the boat, along with Jonah, determine that God has sent this storm in order to correct Jonah. And so they toss Jonah overboard where a giant fish, which Vince won't let us call a whale, (laughs) swallows, swallows Jonah. And Jonah is in this fish, and he prays this prayer of repentance, realizing that salvation only comes from the Lord, and he in that moment needs the Lord's salvation as much as anyone. And so God tells the fish to spit Jonah onto this shore, and that's where our story left off. And so today we're going to get into the next part of the story of Jonah. Before we go there, though, there's something that I need to confess, something that you guys need to know about me. Uh, I I have this disease of the face, uh, and and it's this disease of the face where I I will hear something, and my face reacts to it before I know I shouldn't be reacting to that thing. Okay, so I could be sitting with you, you could be telling me a vulnerable story from your life, but then there's this kind of like gross part in your story, and before knowing it, you'll see my face and I'll just be like, oh, gross. And, uh, and or sometimes even like my face will be judgmental. This happens, I think our interns can attest, I'll be like in here, and I'll be watching how they set something up, and my face will just be like... And I'm just, my face has this reaction to it. The Lord is still working on me. He hasn't gotten to my face yet. And so, uh, in multiple ways. And so, the Lord is still working <laughs> to, to, on me. Because I have this reaction face. And the reason I know about this is I, I didn't quite realize I had it until working with Andy. Because all the time I have this reaction face. And then Andy, I see her across the room and she's like getting everybody. And like, look at Anthony's face right now. Look at Anthony's face right now. And so I began to realize that I have this face that I just react to things. And I, 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 I honestly, I need to work on that. So if you ever see that about me, uh, just pray for me. And... But the reason I tell this story is, is because Jonah chapter 3, it's going to cause reaction in us. Jonah chapter 3, when the Israelites heard this part of Jonah, chapter, of Jonah, they would have a reaction. This part of Jonah was a scandal for them. They would read this part of Jonah that we're going to go through today, and they would have several reactions to it. And then us... Many years later, we read Jonah chapter 3, and if we're looking at it closely, we should have a reaction too. 
And so my hope for today is that we deal with that reaction. That we're going to look at chapter 3 and we're going to look at the different sort of reactions we could have to it. And that, that through this sermon, through uh, t- looking at God's word, that we deal with those reactions. And so for the note takers, here's what today's going to look like. We're going to go through Jonah chapter 3 together, all 10 verses, and just make sure we all understand what it's saying. And then we're going to look at these different reactions. We're going to look at two reactions the Israelites, I think, would have in hearing this text or reading this text for the first time. And then we're going to look at two reactions that we today, reading this text and hearing this text, would have. Okay? And so that's, that's the whole sermon right there up front. So let's hop into Jonah chapter 3. If you don't know where Jonah chapter 3 is in your Bibles, you're not alone. Um, it is a smaller book. And it's in the Old Testament. It's after Obadiah. Uh, For those that like to learn theology, it's referred to as a minor prophet. That's not because he was under 18 and prophesied, but it's because he uh, is a smaller book, smaller prophetic book in the Bible. So if you, it's on page 775 of my Bible, which only helps Gretchen because we have the same Bible. So I, I promised myself I would never make that joke. I heard that joke growing up all the time, and now I'm, I'm that guy. And so the Lord moves in mysterious ways. So Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to hit the first four verses here. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So let's stop right there. So the beginning of the book of Jonah, God says, Go to Nineveh. Jonah says, No. Here's a parallel in chapter 3. God says, go to Nineveh with this word. And Jonah says, yes, hooray. (laughs) Jonah is moving the story forward. We get to see Jonah finally go to Nineveh and preach. Now, if you're anything like me, you right away, as uh, chapter 3 begins to describe uh, Nineveh's dimensions, if you're anything like me, you're starting to go, how far can a person walk in a day? I'm going to Google that, right? You're going to go, Google, and it's about 20, 25 miles. So then you're going, wait a second, is Nineveh 60 miles wide? Like, that's crazy. That seems like pretty big for an ancient city. And so then, did I just hear a ghost? I don't, I, sorry, I thought I heard a noise back there. It's just static, okay. Um, so, sorry, um, ghosts aren't real. Um, <laughs> So you begin to go, well, what, what have archaeologists uncovered about Nineveh? And what you begin to realize is modern-day archaeologists have covered that, uncovered that Nineveh is maybe seven miles wide at a great distance. And so then if you're anything like me, you're like, I think I've just disproved the Bible. Like, I think I've just figured out a way that the Bible's not true. And so a few things for us to help us with that. The first is this. One, modern-day archaeologists, they could be wrong. They might not have uncovered the correct dimensions of Nineveh as they see it. The three days journey thing could have meant something different than what we understand it to mean. It could just mean, I don't know, people were shorter back then, so maybe it took longer to get farther. I don't know. Um, But uh, another thing that I kind of 
rest on, and I think it, it means is that Nineveh here is, is really greater Nineveh. So I'm from Phoenix, and growing up, a pet peeve of mine, I'm from, like, I'm from actual Phoenix. Like, I'm within the city walls of Phoenix, okay? And people all the time, when they're, they're from, like, Mesa or Chandler or Scottsdale or Ahwatukee, like, like, you'll go, where are you from? And they'll be like, oh, I'm from Phoenix. And I'm like, no, you're from Ahwatukee. Just admit it. Like, just admit it. And so, but... I give them the benefit of the doubt. When people say, hey, I'm from Phoenix, and they mean the valley, uh, that's, that, I give them the benefit of the doubt. I go, okay, I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. And the same thing was probably happening with Nineveh. Part of the reason why I think that is in Genesis 10, verses 11 and 12, this is how Nineveh is referred to. It says, from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. So, a lot of theologians, a lot of guys that study Jonah, they look at how Genesis uses that same word for that great city or the great city that we see throughout the book of Jonah, and they, they realize that Nineveh, probably referred to in Jonah, is kind of greater Nineveh. Like, like there's a few cities around Nineveh that, that would be a three days journey to go from one side to the other, okay? So, you didn't disprove the Bible, Stay with me. That really is just to keep the doubters in the room listening. So Jonah goes through Nineveh, a day's journey, and he begins to preach, and he preaches the lamest sermon ever, right? He just goes, hey, 40 days from now, God's going to destroy you all. Hey, 40 days from now, God's going to destroy you all. And, and I, I imagine him just going throughout the city saying this. Some, you know, some people go, hey, this is just a summary of his words, and it, and it probably was a summary. But I also believe Jonah recounted this story later, and he was very intentional in just using these five words to summarize his sermon because I think he was half-heartedly, in my opinion, because of what chapter 4 says that we'll see next week, preaching to Nineveh. So he's going through Nineveh, I think half-heartedly just saying, hey, God's going to destroy you guys in 40 days. Now, let's see how the people of Nineveh react in verse, verses 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may, relent, may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So Jonah goes through the city preaching this message, and the Ninevites right away believe. They right away believe in God. Jonah's one-day journey into the city, and, and God's word seemingly travels faster than Jonah can. It gets to the king, and the people of Nineveh have already begun to fast and, and put on sackcloth, which was a way of basically just saying, like, hey, my sin should make me uncomfortable. My sin should hurt me. And so it was a sign of repentance. And so all this news gets to the king, and the king too repents. 
The king too gets off his throne and he says to the whole city, hey, we need to repent everybody, even the animals, which is weird until you understand that they truly understood the depths of their sin. Too often we think sin is just this kind of like, oh, we hurt other people type thing. Sin's dimensions have creational implications. Sin affects creation itself. And so when the king is saying, put this on the cows and the donkeys and whatever, he, he is understanding that sin affects all of creation, not just humankind. And so they all repent. So we've seen how Jonah's, Jonah acts in this story. We've seen how Nineveh acts in this story. Now let's see how God acts in this story in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the people of Nineveh repent, and God says, okay, I'm not going to bring the disaster that I said I would bring. There's only 10 verses in chapter 3, but there's a lot of story in 10 verses. And we're probably already beginning to react to it. And like I said, the ancient Israelites, as they heard this story for the first time or read this story for the first time, there would have been a reaction for them as well. They knew Nineveh. They saw what it was like. And so for the rest of this sermon, I just want to deal with two reactions from the Israelites and then two reactions from us. And, and here's the thing. All of these reactions, what they're ultimately asking is, who is God? All of these reactions at the end of the day are saying, who is this God of Jonah chapter 3? And they could probably all be answered by, he is gracious and he is loving. But we're going to talk a lot next week about that. And so I want to look at some of these reactions more specifically and answer these questions a, li a little bit more nuanced because God is a little bit more complex than just kind of the generalizations we make about him sometimes. And so we're going to go through these reactions together, and at the end of the day, I hope it helps us to see who God is. The answer to each one of these reactions is God's character, okay? I gave you the cheat sheet. So the first reaction, let's look at the reactions of the, of the Israelites. The first reaction that I think the Israelites would have is, why Nineveh? God, why Nineveh? And, and we're, we're so enlightened, so that we go, of course, Nineveh, right? But just imagine Nazi Germany and God doing this in Nazi Germany and Hitler got off his throne and got saved. I think some of us would go, why the Nazis, God? They're so evil. The this is what, what the Israelites thought about the Ninevites. They're so evil. They've done so much harm to the world. They haven't been repentant until this moment. And they don't deserve to be saved. Why Nineveh? This would have been scandalous for them to read. And the answer is this. Because God is a redeemer and a restorer. Because God redeems and he restores. And simply put, if, the, if, you, if those words are confusing for you, God sees the mess of sin that we've brought upon ourselves. And he says, I'm going to take that mess and I'm going to fix it. 
I'm gonna t- all the things you've destroyed and damaged by your sin, I'm going to restore those things. I'm going to make those things new. Because God is a redeemer and he's a restorer. God's mission throughout the Bible, God has this mission throughout the Bible to make all things new. Not just some things, not just certain things. He is here to make all things new. Sin and Satan ruined everything and God is in the process of fixing everything. All throughout the Bible you see God on this mission intentionally. God is a redeemer and a restorer. I think we don't realize this about God because we, we have very specific visions of God and there's all sorts of visions we have of God of who we think God is. But I think a couple popular ones is this now. We, we, some of us see Christianity, we look at Christianity, and some of us Christians think this too, unfortunately, but that God is essentially going, hey, I'm going to let in all the good boys and good girls. Good boys, come on in. Good girls, come on in. Everybody that's good, come on in. That's one vision of God that we have. So all the good boys get in and all the, the bad boys stay out. But then another vision of God that, that I think is increasingly popular amongst society, for especially people that would be like, no, I'm not a Christian, but I do believe in God. They have this vision of God who doesn't really care about evil, doesn't really care about sin. A God just says, yeah, hey, everybody's welcome. I don't care. Come on in. I don't care that you did that. And the only problem with both those visions of God is it's, it's not the God of the Bible. God thinks nobody's good. So no one could get in by that standard. God does care about the evil that we do. But God is a redeemer and a restorer. And so what we'll talk about more is he makes a way for us to come in. He makes a way for even Nineveh to be saved. He's not saying to Nineveh, hey, you didn't do evil, or you do deserve salvation, or you're not harming the earth. He's just saying to Nineveh, I'm bigger than that, and I'm going to fix this mess. I'm going to fix this mess that you created. So God is a redeemer and restorer. So if the ancient Israelites were asking why Nineveh, they're really asking why, God, would you, who are you, God? Who are you, God? So let's remember that God is a redeemer and restorer. He loves all of his creation. Sin and Satan aren't going to win this story. God is. Okay? That's the first reaction. The second re- reaction I think Israel would have is this. Why did the people of Nineveh, why did these evil people repent so easily? Right, they had murals of these things that Vince read that I would never dare to read on stage uh, of violent atrocities that they would do to each other. And so why did these evil people repent so easily? And the first answer is this. Vince talked about it at length last week. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is God's property. But the second answer is this, and it's the one I kind of want us to camp out on. It's because God is moving in this world. And they saw that and they believed it. God was moving in Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh decided to say, you know what, that is God. I do see him moving. Let's repent. That's what the people of Nineveh 
said. Notice what verse 5 says of of Jonah chapter 3. It does not say that they believed Jonah. It says that they believed God. Now, I don't know if God was like doing other miraculous things and having them here, but it sounds like that God was solely speaking through Jonah. And so instead of the Ninevites going, who's this Jewish guy just like walking through our city being a bummer? Like they, they saw what he was saying and just said, that's God. That's God speaking to us through Jonah. They believed God. I want to read kind of, I think it's a haunting verse. And I'll tell you why in a second. It's Acts 17, 26, and 27. Vince read this last week, but the, the end of it, I, I think should be haunting for us. And it says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul ends saying, he is not, or he doesn't end, but Paul says that God is not far from each one of us. This is haunting to me because I think we just kind of walk around going, God isn't real. This is haunting for me because I, I think I often just go, God, you feel very far from me. And listen, a, a caveat, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to feel that way. It's even okay to think that way for a second. Just read the Psalms if you don't believe me. But if that's where I rest, if that's where I stay and say, no, God really is far away from me or doesn't exist at all, that's just not the truth. The truth is God is actually not far from each of us. God was not far from Nineveh. And the Ninevites, again, instead of just going, who's this guy just walking through our city being a bomber? They go, who's this God that's speaking to us right now? What does that mean for us? God is moving in this world. So why did these evil people repent so easily? Because God is real. Because God is moving. Because God is doing things in this world. God is not far from any of us. Here's my, here's my plea. My plea is this, and it's kind of rooted in, in, my, in my own kind of personal life. I have a friend right now who I, in high school, we, we essentially went to church together. We went to different churches, but we were like the Christians together at our high school and we were in college, we, we went to the same Christian club, and, and, and I got to watch for many years as my friend, I think, have genuine experiences of God, where God moved in his life and spoke to him in all sorts of ways. But now my friend, now years later, is going, no, I don't know what that was. I don't think God is real anymore. Or if he is, I don't think he's Jesus. And my, my, my first question to him right out the gate was like, what was all that then? And he, he honestly he just said, I don't know. But that's my plea to us is that I think there are so many instances where God is moving and he's speaking in all sorts of ways and he's moving in our world and, and we just go, no, that's probably not him. Now listen, we don't have to get crazy with it and, and believe every single thought we have about God and say, well, that's God moving in my life. Like if it contradicts God's word, it's not God. 
But there's very often times where I think we, the saints, we know God has moved in our life, but we go, no, no, he's, he's, actually, he's far from me. No, he isn't. Those in the room, if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. But you know, you have your stories. You might call them spiritual stories or religious experiences or whatever you call them. But I want to contend that God is chasing you. God is actually not far from you so that you might reach out and feel your way to him. May we be like the people of Nineveh and have the eyes to see that God moves in this world. So the Israelites, we could, we, they, had, they probably would have all sorts of reactions to this story. They, they certainly would have thought this was a scandal. They probably could have had a hundred more reactions than, than I listed. But I don't want us to just camp out in how Israel would have saw this story. I think a lot of times we go to the Old Testament and we see these prophets and we are, we're just totally convinced there's nothing in there for us because we're confused by it. But I thought... 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 12, which I'm not going to read, but Vince read it for us last week, was helpful. Peter essentially says, hey, the prophets came to help us today, after Jesus, know what God's salvation is about, know who God is. And so we can go to Jonah chapter 3, and we can react to it, and we can see how our reactions lead us to who God is as well. And so let's take a few minutes to look at some of our reactions to this story in Jonah. The first reaction we have is this. I remember even thinking this when I first started reading the Bible a lot. I remember looking at all these different people that God would use, and probably Jonah in particular, and I would say, how is Jonah so effective here? How is he so effective here? He seems like the worst already, right? And then right when things start getting good, you get to chapter four, and spoiler alert, he's still the worst. <laughs> and yet God moves in Jonah. So how is he so effective here? And the answer is this. God is powerful. Because God is powerful. All throughout the Bible, and in Jonah in particular, we see God not take the strong, not take the beautiful, thank the Lord, not take the mighty and use them for his glory. He takes the, the messiest, he takes the most sinful, he takes the most disgustingly sinful people, and he moves through them. Yes, it's because he's fatherly and he loves us, but it's also because he wants to show us his power. He, at the end of the day, he doesn't want people to go, well, it was because this person was mighty or good-looking or strong or wise. God wants us to know he is all those things. He is powerful. So how is Jonah effective here? He's not. God is. Jonah is weak and annoying and the worst and God still uses him. God still uses him because God is powerful. This should be, this should be an encouragement to us. We kind of live in this day and age where uh, we love this quote. Uh, we say, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, 
use words. And I like that quote too. It helps uh, Christians that are like Jonah to realize, hey, stop being like Jonah and be nice, right? But the problem with that quote is a lot of times we qualify us ever preaching to anybody, us ever speaking to anyone about Jesus. We go, oh, I got to be smart enough, or I got to be eloquent enough, or they have to see me as Jesus Christ incarnate before I will even be like, yeah, this is Jesus in me. Like they, like, but that's just not what God does in the Bible. He takes murderous, disgusting people, and he moves through them because God is a redeemer and a restorer, and he's powerful. This should be encouraging to us that we don't have to qualify ourselves in order to live for God. We don't have to do certain things in order to be uh, for God to use us. Now, don't hear, don't hear me. Don't hear that as now. Anthony said I could do whatever I want, and God's still going to use me. Okay, don't hear that. But God is powerful enough to use you however He sees fit. God is powerful enough. And so when we ask the question, how is Jonah so effective here, we're, we're really coming to realize it's because God is so powerful. We have a God of power in this world moving, and we forget that so often. The next reaction I think a lot of us have, and I have it too, when coming to this story in Jonah chapter 3 is this, is we, we, we ask the question, is God contradicting himself here? He starts off at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3 and even uh, Jonah chapter 1 saying, hey, Jonah, go tell them I'm going to bring disaster. Go tell them I'm going to overturn them. Go tell them it's coming. I'm going to destroy them. And then by the end of Jonah chapter 3, after they repent, God just goes, never mind. I won't do it. Right? And if we're being honest, if we're honestly reacting to the text, we start to go, does this mean God changes? Does this mean God changes his mind? And if he changes his mind, does that mean he changes who he is? And, and the reason that's troubling is because take that th thought further. Does this mean that God can change from one kind of awesome God to maybe a way worse God? For the theology nerds in the room, we're asking the question, is God immutable? Is God unchanging? Because it seems like in Jonah chapter 3, he contradicts himself here. He says, hey, I'm going to do this, then no, I won't. So let me read a passage in Jeremiah chapter 18, 7 and 8 that will help kind of relieve this tension for us about if God changes or not. So Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8 says this. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. He says this, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So God has said in these prophetic utterances of disaster coming that, that they, those prophetic utterances they are conditional, even though he's unchanging. And these prophetic utterances that, that God would have different prophets in Israel make, saying disaster is coming, that they were conditional. 
If those nations repented, God wouldn't bring that disaster. So God can give these conditional prophetic utterances without himself ever having to change. But that doesn't totally relieve the tension for us. I think the doubters in the room were like, well, that was a nice verse to add later or something like that. And even our thoughts as we begin to doubt more, this is, I think it goes to this point. And I think we begin to ask this question. I've heard this in our church a bit. I've heard this with my non-Christian friends a bit. But we begin to say, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? And, and what, what's said there is, hey, in the Old Testament, God is doing kind of all this crazy stuff, fire and brimstone stuff. But in the New Testament, he's not. And so I, wanna, I want us to answer this question a little bit more. This question, is God contradicting himself? Does he change? Is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? And so I want to begin to answer that question. First, God is the same God in both Testaments. And there's a lot of good answers for how to talk through that, things with the covenants, different sorts of things. And the first thing I would say before I give you my longer answer is this. Yes, God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And I would wager, you, you probably just need to read your Old Testament a little bit more closely, or at all, okay? Like, that, just if you just read it. Um, it would help you to see that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus, God in the flesh. It will help you to see that. If you, if you just do this and you just kind of scan down and do what you were taught in grade school and just read through it, you're going to see that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, okay? But a longer answer I want to give you is why do we feel that way? Why does it seem these, why are these, these moments where at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3, God seems one way, at the end of Jonah chapter 3, God seems another? And, and here's, here's a, a better answer. God is complex. God is more complex than you or I want him to be. He is way, way, way more complex than what we're comfortable with. So when my friends come to me and they say, hey, Anthony, it seems like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, I go, I'll do you one better. It seems like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. And I don't really mean that, but it seems that way sometimes. And it's me in my flesh wanting to make a division in God where there isn't a division, where he is just complex. Look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We've read this, I think, almost every week of this series because it's God talking to Moses, and he's basically saying, this is who I am, Moses. And look what he says, starting in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we love that part of God, right? Go, man, I love that. But God, he isn't finished. Mid-sentence. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I want to contend that it's not that God contradicts himself, but there's just parts of God we don't like. 
We love his forgiveness. We love his mercy. We love his grace. And we even love his justice, but not when it's pointed at us. God, right away in Exodus, talking to Moses, is saying, I'm more complex than you realize. I'm loving and I'm just. I'm wrathful and I'm merciful. God is all of those things at once. So God isn't contradicting himself. He is just way more hard for us to understand than we realize. He's just way more complex than we want him to be. We want God of love, who's just about love and loving everyone. That's the often who we want. Or we want God of justice, God who punishes sinners. And we, if we live rightly, we, we are blessed. And all of these things, we want one of those two gods. The only problem with the God of the Bible is he says, I'm the God of love and I'm the God of justice. And that's confusing for us. And it's, I think it's so confusing for us that God uses another 65 books of the Bible to work that out, to help us understand that more. It actually, honestly, when we begin to see God as complex, it helps me to believe that the Bible isn't just made up, right? If we're just making this thing up, you're going to just make God of love, or you're just going to make God of justice, or God of mercy, or God of whatever your favorite characteristic is. Or when things are confusing in the Bible, you'll have, there will be some uh, easy answer. But if the answer is, yeah, God is both those things because he is a complex being, we can't invent that. And it gives, me, it gives me hope for eternity that we're going to be able to worship and praise God forever because there will be always depths of him for us to know and understand more. God is complex, and that is good. He does not contradict himself in Jonah, but he reveals himself. He shows the complex nature of who he is. Honestly, the gospel itself, it, it helps us to see the complex nature of God. The gospel at face value, it, it's easy to understand, but it's complex when you try to understand it. Like Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay, so Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's confusing. 100% and 100%, like that doesn't work in math, God. Like, that's confusing. Jesus gives us his righteousness. Jesus lived a holy life because God is holy, and then he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfection so that when God sees us, he sees his son, Jesus. But we're all a bunch of tools still, right? Like we're all just sinning all the time still. God sees us as righteous even though we're not righteous. The gospel is complex. How Jesus deals with sin and death at the cross, we really see the marriage of God's complexities. We see the marriage of God's justice and God's love for the world. We see the marriage of God's wrath and God's mercy. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. He is taking the punishment and wrath of God for what we have done. God's justice, God's wrath. But in that same moment, as Jesus is dying, he is making a way for all of us to be saved because he loves the world. 
He is making a way for God to show us mercy, for God to withhold punishment for us. So the cross shows us God's mercy and his wrath, his love and his justice. Because God is complex, the gospel is complex. It's easy to understand at face value, but when you begin to mine its depths, you're going to begin to realize the gospel and God are far more complex than what we're comfortable with. We just want easy answers that we could use for sales pitches. But God is more complex than that. This is the God of Jonah. This is the God of the Bible. He loves even the most undeserving. Because he loves his creation, he's restoring and redeeming even the people of Nineveh. He's moving in their midst, and even the people of Nineveh can see that and turn and repent. Even a guy like Jonah, who's just such a mess, God can use, not because Jonah's awesome, but because God is awesome, and God is powerful. And God is loving and just. God is both those things at the same time, not one more than the other. God is perfect in who he is. And and I just want us to sit in that. That's what I want us to sit in after reading Jonah chapter three. I just want us to sit in who God is. I want us to think about who God is. I want us to be challenged by who the God of the Bible is. The God of the Bible makes us uncomfortable. And that's okay. Because he's the infinite, grandiose, complex God who created us all. So let's sit in that. Sit Sit in the fact in Jonah chapter 3 that God shows us who he is, whether we like it or not. But my hope is we like it. My hope is we begin to praise him for it. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for what you did in Nineveh. I think it helps us to see how loving and patient and kind you are and how you do care about evil. You do want their evil to stop. You are just. God, I honestly just thank you for revealing yourself to us. Even if just through Jonah chapter 3. Even if that was the only way you revealed yourself to us, that would be okay. But God, thank you for your spirit that convicts us of our sin and lives in us and seals us and helps us to know who you are more and more each day. God, let, us, let everybody in this room be a people that when we see the God of the Bible, even in the uncomfortable moments for us, that we still run and turn to you, that we still run and praise you. God, if there's those here dealing with certain doubts or unsure about who you are or they don't like who you are, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would move in their heart. That you would cause their heart to be comforted. That you would see that their their, their broken heart truly yearns for you even in the midst of their doubts and their pains and their wonderings. 
and that you would just speak to them in that. God, help us to be a people that repent. Help us to see, help us to see you. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.